Although HIPAA allows covered entities, such as hospitals, to disclose patient information to other covered entities for purposes related to health care treatment, payment, or business operations, some health care organizations have privacy or other policies that require patients to give explicit consent before allowing the exchange of health data with other entities. So how do these policies impact the data that's shared? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with University of Michigan researcher Julia Adler-Milstein, who is co-author of a recent study that examined how health information exchange policies, including policies related to patient consent, impacts the volume of data that's shared among healthcare providers. The study was recently published in the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association. So now, Julia, for starters, very briefly just describe what your study examined. So our study uh, took advantage of the fact that there was a collaboration of 12 uh, different healthcare provider organizations in Northern California, uh, 11 of which uh, decided to participate in our study. And they've been working together to really make sure that the organization were coordinating on decisions with respect to health information exchange that would help increase the value across the network. I think what this really recognizes is that health information exchange is a network technology and and the actions of one stakeholder in the network can really impact everyone else. And so they formed this collaborative as really a way to work together and in tandem so that they could pursue health information exchange in a way that was beneficial to all of these organizations. So when you say a collaborative, did they set up a formal health information exchange organization or did they have sort of a relationship with each other to share information? No, there's not a formal entity that was set up. It was really just led by someone who was involved with health information exchange at one of the organizations and and more informally got key leaders at all the other organizations to get together and sort of routinely interact, but there was no formal organization that was set up. But your question brings up the important point that all of these systems were using EPIC, and EPIC has built into it a health information exchange capability. It's really a sort of platform called Care Everywhere. And so this group had the ability to exchange with each other and then added on to that this collaborative that was really meant to discuss, well, how can we use this capability in a way that's most beneficial. So now, Julia, your study noted that some healthcare organizations had policies seeking patient consent for every health information exchange transaction, while other organizations only sought patient consent for some transactions, such as those involving sensitive data like mental health or substance abuse information. How do the different patient consent policies affect the amount or type of patient data that gets shared electronically. This variation across the organization stemmed from the individual organizations, and usually it's the chief legal counsel that makes a decision about how to interpret HIPAA. And there are more liberal and more conservative interpretations of HIPAA. And so in some cases, particular organizations felt like, well, when you give the notice of privacy practices that say we will do what's needed for treatment, payment, and operations, that just giving that notice of privacy practice was enough to cover the consent that's needed for health information exchange. 
And then as you said, others felt like, nope, every time a piece of information is shared outside our organization, that needs to be a proactive, specific patient consent that happens. And then somewhere in the middle that said, well, we only need that more active consent for certain types of, of information. So just to be clear on sort of what that is, and again, this is because there's some ambiguity in HIPAA in terms of what falls under treatment, payment, and operations. And so this is what created then the opportunity for these different health systems to interpret that differently. Let me just add then the second piece to that, uh, and the reason that this came up in the collaborative is that if I, organization one, say, well, I'm going to require this more granular consent, that means that all the other players in the network have to gain that patient consent on their end, right? So this is not a policy decision that is decided on and acted upon by a single organization. It has these ripple effects throughout the network. And so that was really an example of why this collaborative was formed, because they said, well, if you make a more conservative decision about how to treat consent, that impacts the amount of work that all the rest of us have to do. So I think that's the really important point here. So then what we did is we said, okay, well, when there are these different decisions that are made around how conservative uh, to be around interpreting patient consent, did that impact the volume of clinical summaries that we saw exchanged? And so what we saw is that there was a difference, specifically those that did require explicit consent saw a sort of a slow increase in summary record exchange month to month, so 510 summaries that were exchanged month over month, as compared to provider organizations that did not require this specific additional consent for HIE that saw an increase of just over 4,500 summaries per month over the period that we observed. So that's quite a difference. Again, you know, is it only due to consent? Hard to say, but it's a big enough gap that it's likely that these more conservative consent policies really did limit the volume of exchange that took place. In terms of the varying degrees of patient consent that different organizations had in their policies for health information exchange, is the technology behind the transactions able to sort of support these varying levels of patient consent that's needed, or is there a lot of manual work that has to be done and manual checking to see if a patient has signed a patient consent form to share certain information? Yes, there absolutely is quite a lot of manual work that's involved, and I think this is an issue far beyond this paper of sort of how do we handle the fact that different information is treated differently, both based on organization-specific decisions, but also based on state policies. And so this collaborative had the luxury of only being under California state law had we been talking about exchanging between California and other states, then you would need to make sure that all the consent policies are built in to accommodate whatever state that information may be moving across. So this is a big issue. I know the National Governors Association has taken this on um, because the complexity of really trying to ensure that you have all the appropriate consent procedures in place for any given exchange transaction that might need to take place is, I think, just so burdensome today. And we haven't really figured out an elegant technology solution to accommodate it either. So I think it's a widely recognized problem that that we all agree needs to be uh, solved. In terms of the varying sorts of patient consent policies for health information exchange that you saw, what are the main drivers for the variety of policies that you saw? For instance, are some of the organizations more restrictive or conservative with patient consent policies trying to prevent potential patient privacy breaches? 
Are some organizations confused or perhaps fearful about perhaps potentially violating HIPAA or other state privacy regulations if they were to have a more relaxed patient consent policy related to health information exchange? I'm not in those discussions, um, and so I don't really get to see firsthand this collaborative, what that involved. And But yes, in my sense, and having seen these discussions go on in the health system that I'm most closely affiliated with, really comes down to the lean of, of the chief counsel of the organization. And it also then can be influenced by the past history of that organization. So has there been a breach? Have there been recent breaches in the community such that they might be more sensitive about these types of issues? So it really is a judgment call that those organizations make. And I think it's influenced by a lot of things that both their inherent, you know, uh, lean to be more liberal or more conservative on these issues, as well as recent happenings to them and their community. Uh, so I think it is, it's a multifactorial decision, but again, it does come down to, to sort of what, what is the lean of, of, that, of that organization. I will say that I think one of the reasons that this collaborative has been successful is that they were able to do studies like this and show data to the members that had more conservative consent policies and subsequent to that, I believe all of them have shifted to the, the sort of least conservative approach. And so, again, this, we're learning how to do this, and that's why I think studies like this are so important because it's helping bring data to these questions. And then I think organizations are willing to say, okay, well, now that we see that, you know, our lean to be more conservative is actually impacting the volume of exchange, and, and we see that that's a bad thing, and so we're going to make a change to that policy. So it's not fixed in time, I think, what, you know, what these policies are. Organizations could change them really from, from day to day if they wanted, and, and it's encouraging to see that they are uh, using data to inform those decisions. Federal regulators have been pushing for nationwide secure exchange of health information. For instance, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT and the Office for Civil Rights have been trying to stop so-called information blocking, which includes healthcare organizations intentionally preventing patient information from being shared with other entities as allowed by HIPAA. So now, based on what you learned from your study, do you think that some of the patient consent policies that healthcare organizations have set when it comes to health information exchange could potentially contribute to what the feds see as a so-called problem of information blocking and why? The key with information blocking is that it needs to be done knowingly, right? If a provider organization really doesn't understand HIPAA, that's actually not information blocking. Right? They need to understand HIPAA, but then effectively claim that they don't, and then have that be the reason that they don't share information. And so certainly I think it's possible that organizations could be designing consent policies that are overly conservative, even though they know that they don't need to be, and they are falsely claiming that it's HIPAA that's driving that when it's not. I mean, that would meet the definition of information blocking. But I suspect what perhaps is, is more common is that there truly are misunderstandings about HIPAA and what it does and doesn't allow. That is not the definition of information blocking, um, and that is something that we should be able to readily correct, and I know that ONC is actively working to make sure healthcare delivery organizations are very clear that HIPAA does allow information sharing and that they can share information with other provider organizations. That's how that would work. What would you say are the key lessons that healthcare entities that are participating in health information exchange, whether it's individually with other organizations or even through a health information exchange organization, what lessons might they learn from this study when it comes to managing patient consent, participating in health information exchange, but also protecting patient privacy at the same time? 
Sure. I mean, I think what we showed is that the policy decisions of individual organizations around how to manage a health information exchange do impact the overall volume of exchange. Again, if you come at this from the perspective of, well, right now we know that not enough information is shared, that should be perceived as a good thing. But I think it also then raises the question of, well, now that some cases like this collaborative where we really can engage in broad information sharing, how do we achieve the right balance between making information available and making sure that patient preferences around who gets to see their data are respected. And so I think we're now just entering that period and it's going to be a lot of decisions and negotiation and need to study what's working and what's not. So I think this collaborative and this study are a model uh, for what needs to happen going forward where organizations have a forum to come together and discuss and debate the right approach and share best practices and then learn and use research as an opportunity to understand what's working. Julia, one last question. Are there any sort of implications in all of this for patient safety? For instance, if a clinician is seeking information about a patient, but that data is held by an organization that has more restrictive sorts of patient consent policies and the patients haven't given permission for certain information to be disclosed, is there a potential for clinicians at another organization who might be faced with treating a patient that they might not have the whole picture in terms of what the history is of a patient, for instance, and perhaps could potentially make erroneous sorts of decisions about care because they don't have the full picture? Absolutely, and that's really the fundamental motivation for health information exchange is that we know that when we rely on manual approaches, fax and phone, that information slips through the cracks or is never communicated, and that does compromise the safety and quality of care. So I think that that is a primary motivation. So I think an interesting question is, is the standard of care going to evolve as HIE becomes increasingly becomes an option? If a provider is missing a piece of information, are they going to be held liable for that? you know, if there is some kind of adverse event or patient safety failure. And so we're not quite there because HIE is still not widespread. But I think, again, it does bring up the point that I think everyone would agree that best care is when provider has full access to your information. And we haven't really been able to build the infrastructure to allow that up to this point. But I think we're all seeing that that is going to be available in the near future. And then we're going to have to figure out how to make sure that that then becomes the new standard of care where we expect providers to be able to see all the information. Again, sort of subject to to patient preferences. And naturally, that is going to lead to an interesting set of questions of if a patient says, no, I don't want that information shared, and that results in a poor health outcome, um, what, what do we do in that situation? So there's a lot of complexity to work through. But again, I think we want to be in the position to work through these types of complexities because it will mean that information can't really be shared. Thanks, Julia. I've been speaking to Julia Adler-Milstein. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.